30. Start with our summary statement for this psalm. Psalm 130, hopes in the Lord for the redemption of Israel, through Yahweh's covenant mercy and forgiveness. We'll go over that again. Psalm 130, hopes in the Lord for the redemption of Israel through Yahweh's covenant mercy and forgiveness. A simple outline for the psalm would be two parts, verses 1 to 6, Israel in the depths. And then verses 7 and 8, Israel hopes in redemption. We'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 6, Israel in the depths. Verses 7 to 8, Israel hopes in redemption. All right, we go to our observations for this psalm. So Psalm 130 is an anonymous psalm. You can see the superscription there, Song of Degrees. Um, no author attribution or any, anything in the text either that would identify an author. Uh, no musical direction that is given and no particular occasion that is given um, for the writing of this psalm. So to categorize this psalm, obviously it is a psalm of ascent. And so it is a part of this group. So Psalms of Ascent, again, start with Psalm 120, go through Psalm 134. Uh, this now is the 11th of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. Uh, does have a couple of minor elements, and one of those would be penitential. And so we've talked at times about penitential Psalms, and um, this... Uh, Psalm type would be identified by some sort of an acknowledgement of sin or unrighteousness, uh, essentially being the problem or, or the primary problem, you might say, in the psalm. And um, as far as I counted, uh, I counted only 15 psalms out of the 150 that have penitential references in them, some sort of confession of sin or reference to um, to sin on the part of the psalmist or of the nation of Israel. Now, other references to sin and unrighteousness, which are very common in the Psalms, they more typically actually refer to the enemies or to just um, sort of an unspecified wicked or ungodly. Um, but here, here we have one of the cases where it's actually the sins of Israel that are acknowledged in the psalm. This psalm also has elements of the prophetic predictive, and so um, we have a few future-oriented terms. We have uh, a reference to the future redemption of Israel in this particular psalm. That is the sort of the subject of it. 
Uh, the connections for Psalm 130, obviously it does connect with the other Psalms of Ascent, uh, this group, um, particularly with the themes of exile and restoration or redemption. So we get imagery at the start of this Psalm, out of the depths have I cried, and, and um, it, which is tapping into uh, the imagery of exile. Um, and uh, the Ascent Psalm also, if you look at them as a group, they identify various troubles for Israel. So you have a problem for them is that they're scattered in exile. They're, they're not you know, in the land that has been promised to them. Um, they are facing opposition and hatred from their many enemies. Um, and now we can add to that in, in this particular group of Psalms the, the problem of Israel's own sin, um, which is really the major problem for Israel. So this, again, it does connect and fit in with the Psalms of Ascent. Um, Aside from that, it does have um, strong connections with Psalm 107, and particularly this Psalm 107 has this extensive imagery of the sea and the depths of the sea as exile for Israel, um, which also taps into a death and resurrection motif. Um, external connections for this psalm, we have this reference to forgiveness in the psalm. Um, same term is used in a couple of places. And in both of these places, they are prayers of confession for the nation of Israel and prayers for redemption for the nation of Israel. And that would be in Daniel chapter 9 and in Nehemiah. Chapter uh, chapter nine, yes, Nehemiah chapter nine. Again, both of those prayers of confession. Uh, Nehemiah coming later than Daniel's, obviously, um, but Nehemiah particularly is is praying this after there has been a return to Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple and um, all of that, recognizing that this is not the future redemption of Israel that had been promised, and so um, it does have connections with those two uh, particular places as well outside of the Psalms. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 130, um, a major one would be imagery, obviously, this depths reference, which uh, literally refers to the depths of the sea. Um, and it is, as an image, as a figure, it is an implication of death, uh, which um, means that resurrection uh, is necessary for redemption. Uh, we also have imagery of watchmen, uh, night, like night watchmen that are... Um, waiting for the dawn. Uh, we have them, uh, that reference. Um, I would say also poetically, when you look through this psalm, you see this use of Lord, all caps, which is Yahweh, uh, and then you have Lord that's only a capital L, uh, and that is um, Adonai. Um, and you get this Lord, Lord sort of alternating through this psalm until you get down to verse 7 where you just get a, a double Yahweh reference, um, which is the way that the psalm ends, which is certainly interesting. Um, also, we would see the movement of this psalm. So starting out in the depths is like being in the depths of the sea. In other words, um, the, the psalm moves from, from death to life. Um, so that's going to be um, what you, I guess you might call it a value shift um, in the psalm. Uh, from despair to hope. And, and another uh, movement in the psalm would be from personal to national. Uh, so the, the psalm starts out 
um, speaking more personally in the, toward the individual, but then in the end um, has reference to Israel, to um, the people. All right, so let's work our way through this psalm. We have eight verses. I'll go ahead and read these. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the psalm opens up, verses 1 and 2, and we have sort of this direct address prayer. Um, And the psalm does have some similarities with uh, lament-style psalms, but um, I don't think that's an extremely strong case to be made for that. But um, it does have this direct address petition. Uh, We have this reference to the depths, which again uh, literally refers to the depths of the sea. Uh, More figuratively, um, would refer to death or or the realm of death. Um, We have references to the depths in Psalm 69, verses 2 and 14, Psalm 93 and verse 3, and then Psalm 107 and verse number 23, which again, Psalm 107 sort of gives an extended um, use of this imagery. Um, So the the imagery is is that of exile and and that of death. So uh, it sort of taps into, if you think about um, Ezekiel and uh, the Valley of Dry Bones, um, at which just... Please read the whole chapter because it says, you know, these bones are the house of Israel. Um, so it, Israel essentially is seen as dead because of the exile and because of the judgment that has come upon them. And, of course, the question is, well, can these bones live? In other words, can, can Israel be restored? Can Israel come back? Can there be an Israel again? And, of course, the whole purpose of the, the vision to Ezekiel is that, yes, um, this is God's promise he will keep his word and they will be restored so this death and resurrection motif is very common with their exile so they they would be currently in the state of death they would be currently in um, the depths Uh, of course there's always a remnant um, of believing but as a nation um, they are still experiencing uh, this death of exile so obviously this is a reference to the restoration of Israel that will only come through their redemption We have the request here to be heard, and we have seen that especially in lament psalms. And the other thing that we've noticed about that, um, that request to be heard, for God's ear to to attend um, to the prayer, is it's it's prayed on the basis of God's covenant promises. In other words, it's not not somebody, um, you know, just taking a long shot in, in, in prayer. And, you know, it'd be really nice if this, and I'll just, I'll just give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? The worst is he can say no. No, it's a prayer that's actually based on God's covenant promises, and, it, and it's, it's indicative of the fact that there, these have not been fulfilled yet. And so sometimes paired with this sort of uh, prayer, we will get references to questions like how long, how long. Um, will it be? And that also comes out a little bit um, in this psalm as well as, as we go on further. Verses 3 to 4 
give us this contrast um, that, that's quite central to the psalm. In other words, we start out with the condition um, of the psalmist and ultimately the condition of Israel, and then we end with the hope of, of Israel being redeemed. Well, what does that hope turn on? Well, that hope turns on God being merciful, God being forgiving. So we, this is where this, this contrast, this turn comes. So it starts out talking about God marking um, iniquity. And, and to mark is obviously to keep a record or to keep track of. So if, in other words, if, if God marks down um, all sins, then who's, who's going to stand? And it reminds us of the reference in, in Psalm 1 and verse 5 about how the ungodly will not stand in the judgment. In other words, they're not going to, they're not going to escape that judgment um, apart from condemnation. So if, if God keeps a record of sins, then who could stand? Who could be saved? The ungodly will not stand. And the implication is, for this question, somewhat rhetorical, is that no one would. No one would be saved if God simply just marked sins. That's all that he did. No one would be saved. Well, then you get the turn. But there is forgiveness with God, and that word uh, forgiveness or pardon. So not only does God mark iniquities, which he does do, he does keep a record. And you can turn over um, in, in, in Revelation when you see the judgment, you know, the books are opened and the, and the you know, the, the uh, dead are judged out of the things written in the books and, and so on. Like God, God does know um, those sins and God does mark those sins. But there's also forgiveness of sins, and there's also pardon from the condemnation of sins. Now, this same term for forgiveness is what's used there in Daniel 9 um, and, and in Nehemiah chapter 9 in those, in those particular prayers. And, and uh, actually, this word for forgiveness that's used here does not occur um, very commonly at all. There's other associated terms, but um, this one is somewhat unique and is only used like here and, and in, in, this, in this context. So God's grace, rather than excusing or allowing sin, and this might be just a little bit of an aside, but not, not really too much. Um, oftentimes, and, and Paul obviously dealt with it because you can see it in, in Romans, he addresses it, and the preaching of free grace, as it were, um, that salvation is, is apart from any and all works of the law and is, is by, by faith, um, it's by grace through faith in, in Jesus Christ alone. Um, the preaching of free grace, the charge always is. Well, that leads to sin. That leads to um, unrighteousness. That, that leads to basically a, a, a blank check of sin that you can write. Oh, well, I'm covered by grace. But even when you see these statements, I mean, look at what it says there in verse, verse 4. But there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So God's grace, rather than excusing or allowing sin, actually prompts reverential fear of God. And again, this is agreed with in other places as well as in the, in the New Testament. Verses 5 to 6 then now give us this reference to waiting on the Lord. And again, that's not uncommon, particularly in these covenantal type of prayers, because there's an expectation there's a promise that's been made, and so there's an expectation that it's going to be fulfilled. And, and the, the one doing the praying is either asking how long or is expressing 
that it has not yet come, and so waiting is necessary. And that's sort of what we get in this psalm, waiting on the Lord. And waiting, again, is, that, is, a, re, is a covenantal type of reference grounded in God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. So the point is, is that redemption will come. And we've, we've seen this, um, this reference in places like Psalm 25, verses 3 and 5, Psalm 27 and verse 14, Psalm 37 and verse 9, Psalm 40 and verse 1, and Psalm 69 and verse number 6. And notice here that the hope is founded on God's word. And that, that word there that's used um, simply just means that that has been spoken, something that's said. So the hope for this redemption is founded on and is resting on what God has said. Then we get this imagery of the watchman for the, for the waiting. Um, we're, we're, we're waiting on God's redemption according to his promises like the coming of the dawn. Um, so the watchmen are waiting and waiting and they're watching and they have intense expectation for the dawn, for the breaking of the, of the darkness. And their hope will come, but they can't hurry it along. I mean, there's nothing they can do to make it dawn quicker than, than what it's going to dawn. And, uh, but it will come and they know that it will come. They're sure of it. But, you know, obviously those, those hours can sometimes get long when you're um, watching and waiting for, for something like that to happen. And so the psalmist compares um, the waiting for the Lord's redemption of Israel um, to the watchman that's watching for the coming of the morning. And then we get verses 7 and 8 that conclude this psalm with the hope of Israel. And this is where we sort of we, we see this movement that has gone from what seemed a little more individual at the beginning to now that we're, we're talking of Israel as a, as a nation. Um, so with the Lord, we're told, there is mercy and that is chesed and this interestingly this is the only place that that word appears in the psalms of ascent now it appears abundantly elsewhere there are other covenantal references um, within the psalms of ascent but the only use of chesed is here um Yahweh's redemption of Israel then is according to his covenant promises well what covenant promises then are being referenced? Well, that would be God's covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, God's covenant promises to David, and God's covenant promises to Israel and Judah in the new covenant as well. So the, all, all of these um, have something to do with God's promise of the redemption of Israel, that they will possess their land as an everlasting possession. And by the way, all three of those covenants um, have references and promises to them possessing that land that has been promised. So it's, it's according to his mercy, his covenant mercy, covenant faithfulness, covenant loyalty. Um, again, it's, it's a hard term to, to just sort of put right into English as I understand it, but nevertheless, it, it is a, a covenantal type of term, and particularly we can see that in the context as well. And so he will redeem Israel, this, and this is the final statement of, of the psalm. It, it will happen. Now, the psalm can't say when, and that's part of the, part of the um, uh, uh, you know, might say the motivation or the drive of the prayer. The psalmist can't say when this is going to happen, but it will happen. It is, it is sure to happen. The word for redeem there is a common word for ransom, uh, commonly occurs in, in uh, the books of the law. 
um, to has to do with paying a ransom price, loosing by a price. And this psalm makes it clear that Israel needs redeemed from their sins. So um, we've had some psalms, uh, and, and even in book five, we've had some psalms that make reference to Egypt, for instance, and, and the exodus from Egypt and such. But really the bondage of, of Egypt is, is, not, um, is not as great a threat to them um, as the bondage to their own sins. That's ultimately what they need to be um, redeemed from. All right, let's go to interpretation. So Psalm 130 teaches that the Lord is righteous, and the idea of the Lord being righteous is being just and, and completely just. But he's also abundant in forgiveness, and he's abundant in forgiveness to those who trust in him. In other words, those who, who, who enter into covenant relationship with him. So despite the crisis complaints of Israel, and they have been many, um, scattered in exile, Jerusalem destroyed at different times, afflictions that they have suffered as a people, persecutions at the hands of others, enemy hatred, all of these sort of things. So, so despite all of these crisis complaints of Israel that we could just sort of pile up, ultimately it is their sins that separate them from God. So their sins must be forgiven in order for them to be restored. They must be redeemed from bondage to sin. And so this redemption of Israel is this future redemption of Israel that is prophesied um, in, in, uh, I picked out a couple places, Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 1. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And he shall be in bitterness for him as one that um, is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadarimon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart, and all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, to pick up a New Testament reference to this future redemption, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, Paul writing, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Listen to this. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So this redemption, future redemption of Israel, again, based on God's covenant promises. And of course, in Romans 9 to 11, the whole entire um, argument that Paul is, is making there, he is explaining 
why so many Jews were in unbelief. They had rejected the Messiah, and they were continuing in unbelief. And, and he starts out pretty early there asking, Has the word of, is the word of God to have, of no effect? In other words, has God's promises failed? Um, are they of no effect? And, of course, he comes to this conclusion that... Um, no, they have not failed. And in fact, Israel has been blinded and set aside until this time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Um, but then he will, he will turn to them uh, and take away their sins. So this is this future redemption of Israel. And this is what this psalm is about. And the messianic hope in Psalm 130 is seen through the redemption of Israel being dependent on their Messiah. So we saw that reference in, in Zechariah 12. Uh, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will, they will mourn for him. Uh, another uh, great passage, again, Isaiah chapter 53, which is actually a prophecy of the future confession of Israel when they embrace their Messiah. So all, all, of, all of this redemption of Israel is, is contingent upon, is dependent upon their Messiah. And you can think about, some of the references that we have to this in, in reference to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we looked at not too awful long ago. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we have gone through, um, looking at the Old Testament, we've, we've seen it continue into the New, that when we have that, that statement of people, that's singular, that, that's nation, it's equivalent in the Hebrew and the Greek, and it's used with that personal pronoun, that possessive pronoun, his, my, um, your, it's used with that pronoun, it's always a reference to the nation of Israel. So even in, even in the prophecy concerning Jesus' birth, we see this redemption of Israel that is referred to because he has come. Uh, you look forward, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament or covenant, which is what that word means there, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So it's only through the sacrificial death of Jesus that Israel will be redeemed. And so when we read this psalm, we see all this waiting. What are they waiting for? Waiting for the Messiah. Waiting for the Messiah to come and to redeem them. And, of course, we know that he has come. And Paul talked about how that's, that, that's, that's uh, a mystery, that this blindness happened to them, that they're set aside for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles, because even all the way back um, to God's covenant promise to Abraham, he has promised to bless all nations of the earth through Abraham and through that nation um, of him and, and Jacob. All right, let's go to application. I have two of these. Um, so understanding Psalm 130 helps us understand the true source of our problems. So like Israel, it's actually not enemies. It's not political opponents. It's not... Um, any, you know, anyone else, the sufferings or afflictions or um, our um, status or it really is, it's not any of, any of those things that's our real true problem. Our real true problem for all of mankind is that our own sins separate us from God and that we cannot stand before him in our natural state except that we experience his judgment and condemnation for our sins. So 
What that also helps us to understand, though, is that just like it was with Israel, attempts to try to ease our, our guilt by whatever various means um, that, that we turn to, that Israel turned to of old, and that men have turned to, um, all, all, of these are in, all of these are ineffective, again, because our, that's our real root problem. So that leads us to number two. And understanding Psalm 130 then helps us understand the good news. So God forgives sins. Well, that is great news. God forgives sins according to his covenant promises for all those who trust in him. So all of those who take refuge in him, all of those who trust in him, enter into covenant relationship with him and experience the forgiveness of sins and receive the pardon. And we're told that God is gracious. God is abundant in forgiveness. And of course, that is good news. And also, like Israel, it is entirely dependent on the sacrifice of Christ in our place by the shedding of his blood that our sins be 